but I'm very pleased today to be joined by the excellent Pacers beat writer with his own Substack, the Fieldhouse File, Scott Agnes, and Caitlin Cooper from Indie Corners and several other places. And uh, we're going to go deep on the DeAndre Ayton Pacers kind of hold up that we're in um, for the beginning of this. And then I'm sure we're going to get a ton of Donovan Utah questions in the second half. Um, so definitely call in and get your questions in the queue if you want uh, to be first in line when we get there. Um, I am in Denver at a friend's house post Vegas Summer League and the power went out. So I'm sitting outside on their front porch. So if there is any uh, feedback from a car or whatever in the background, I apologize. But this is what we got to do. The show must go on. The Indiana Pacers are the, one of the biggest stories in the NBA, which is not typically where things stand. So we had to we had to call an emergency Pacers powwow. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll start I'll start with Scott. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining me. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm finishing up here in Vegas right now, so I got the nice aesthetics of uh, you know people knocking on doors, housekeeping, that type of thing. But it's been a good run out here. I, I've been surprised in the number of people that are excited to go home, like. I can't get enough of all the different stuff that's out here and the people you run into. So things are going well, but you're right. There, <laughs> this Aiden thing has dragged on just a little bit. Well, to me, like the way I always try to conduct myself at these events, summer league showcase in December, um, the combine, like to, I think it's, it's so beneficial to be out drinking till four with people. <laughs> and if you do it every night, it takes its toll. So that is why for me personally, <laughs> uh, I can only do it for so long. No, that's fair. I, I haven't quite had those long of an excursions, let's say, but it's definitely been all beneficial. Caitlin, how are you? Have you been taking this all in from, from afar? Or have you gotten up to any events at all lately? No, I'm, I'm not in Vegas. I'm back home in Indiana, so I do not have any background noise to deal with. I am in a quiet area of rural Indiana currently, so. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, look, I I had first heard of Indy's at least interest in DeAndre Ayton back at the trade deadline when there was this idea that maybe there could be something with Sabonis in a sign-and-trade in the summer um i think maybe i don't know for sure scott probably knows better than me if that was actually discussed at all as like an in-season swap in february before sabonis went to sack scott was that when Aiton first got Aiton and indy first got on your radar too yeah it was although my understanding was it was not it was not for sabonis i don't i'm not sure they were willing to part with him until sacramento really made tyrese halliburton available but um, yeah, Aiden, it's connection to Indy and that possibility first popped up, I want to say about five days before the trade deadline. So where things stand right now, um, you and I were on the concourse in Vegas, I guess it was like Saturday or so. And we were talking and I said to you, well, you know, it sounds like this thing isn't going to be official for a little bit. And you said to me, no, it's official. They could ask him an hour ago. I was like, I don't know, like it doesn't, it seems kind of weird. And then sure enough, all the physical stuff comes up and, and we, we, we reconnected in the media room, which led to this <laughs> talk today. Yeah. What's, I mean, as someone who's been just kind of locked in on the situation, can you kind of take us through your whirlwind of trying to figure out and connect all these pieces? Yeah, it was bizarre, and I'll give you credit, you were on it, and uh, what threw me off the scent is this is not at all how the Pacers usually operate, and um, what I mean by that is they're usually overly safe in waiting until things are officially official, if you will, even if it means another five days. So we saw the Pacers announce after, and then the, or the Celtics announced and the Pacers announced and included in the Celtics announcement, I want to say it was Saturday morning for us out here. And, you know, it included Brad Stevens, the president of the Celtics, you know, acknowledging Brogdon and speaking to his fit out there and all of that. And I was like, oh, all right, so this is done. And that's then a couple, probably an hour later, I think, when I ran into you there on the concourse. And when the Pacers announced things, again, it's very concrete. And so, to give you credit, you were on top of that uh, right there. And so, what over the last day or two, what I found out here is there was extreme confidence that nothing was going to fall through. However, 
Brogdon had not taken his physical, and the Pacers had expected that to get done a few days earlier as well. The Celtics, I'm told, had all of his medical stuff. The Pacers were uh, very friendly in this deal and sent them what they had, I'm told, you know, his records, his MRIs, what, all that kind of stuff that another team would want to consider him. But then ultimately, you're going to see a franchise want their team physicians to over, look over the player before signing off. But there was no reason for either side to expect a hiccup. But we waited to that until I think it was late Monday. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the Celtics were not going to be looking to fail Malcolm Brogdon's physical. Like, like they needed – I was talking to someone there um, in in the weeks – I don't remember the exact timing, but in the weeks between the finals – or the days between the finals ending and the draft, and they said to me, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, it seems pretty obvious that another lead ball handler type guy would help. Um, and – uh, you know, there isn't, there weren't that many options of guys who could actually move the Celtics ceiling so significantly at the type of lower price level that Brogdon came at. I mean, Caitlin, you've obviously studied Brogdon for, for years now. Just where do you think of Brogdon's fit with the Celtics as that kind of situation eventually comes to a conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the Celtics, you do that trade 10 times out of 10, especially with yeah. what the price was. You're not going to be playing Aaron Neesmith next year. That pick isn't really all that helpful to you. So I think that Malcolm Brogdon does make them a better team. He's going to be a better player than Derek White. But in terms of them kind of packaging that as him being a pure playmaking point guard, I can tell you that there's a pretty big difference between watching Malcolm Brogdon play point and watching Tyrese Halliburton play point. I think ideally Brogdon's more of a, 1.75 who can run offense but is better suited and also for his durability and longevity playing off the ball more so I don't know that it necessarily solves their core competency issues which is you know can Tatum play off of two feet and be able to draw fouls at the rim can Jalen Brown improve his handle he can be a re- release valve and be a good slot driver and attract attention that way but I think that they're still going to need growth from their main guys yeah there just wasn't oh, like a, a wealthy point guard market this summer. I mean, the names that were out there were Brogdon, Monty Morris, John Wall, who was destined to go to the Clippers, you know, D'Angelo Russell, um, you know, you go down the list. There, there wasn't, you know, there was no Kyle Lowry sweepstakes this year, right? Like, I do think Brogdon was maybe the best, especially for the price, was maybe the best the Celtics could have done. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, especially at that price, I think that they should be happy with it. And I don't think that they're in a place where they really have to panic at this point in time. You just went to the NBA Finals, you lasted six games. And I think that it's reasonable to continue to bank on the growth of of Jason and Jalen with what strides they've already made. And I'll just be interested to see how it shakes out, given how kind of protective Marcus Smart has been of wanting to play point guard and the fact that in the past... Malcolm Brogdon has said that's his best ideal position as well, and it's kind of sounded out of there that you know they might be looking at bringing Malcolm off the bench. So we'll see how some of those roles shake out, but I do think that it helps them. He he is an upgrade over what they have. And Jake, yeah. let me let me add to that. I thought Caitlin said it very well, mentioning how Brogdon's kind of like a one point seven five, and I thought that was pretty good, alluding to his position there. Because to to her point, like I, I specifically asked him at exit interviews a couple of years ago, you know. Because I see him more as a two as well. And so I was like, are you still set on being a point guard? That's in part why he was really intrigued with coming to Indiana. He could be that point guard finally. Are you a point guard or are you good playing off the two? And he was just short to the point, I'm a point guard, and left it at that. So to the bigger picture here, I think he's kind of got a change in attitude we're seeing here. You know, all he's posting is, I'm all about a championship now. Um, He already got paid. He already played the position. And I think now we're seeing maybe a third phase in his career where it's finding a role and having a, a championship mentality. It had to hurt him. He wouldn't admit it, but it had to bother him to leave Milwaukee and then to see them win a championship after he had so much success there and all that went down there. But I think if he can play more off the ball, and you know that's where we saw him enter that 50-40-90 club, I think that's where he'd be more efficient. The change of attitude is an interesting turn of phrase, um, being that – Obviously, the injury history would suggest a, a reason or a reasoning why the Pacers would have been even interested in moving on from Malcolm at all. But aside from the obvious, they're in a rebuild. They've got Tyrese, all that. But this is a, this is a player that they splurged for in restricted free agency for a reason. 
Um, from your reporting, Scott, can you tell our listeners why the Pacers were, were actually looking to move off of him right now? Yeah, it all it's as simple as Tyrese Halliburton. Um, when you, they were able to add him, and he's kind of the first true point guard that I've said since Jamal Tinsley. So you got to go back several decades with this Pacers franchise, in my opinion. Maybe you could consider a guy like Darren Collison. I don't include George Hill with that. Um, so when they were able to go get their true point guard in Tyrese Halliburton, who has been all in on Indy and all of that, um, not only has that Caitlin alluded to earlier, has opened up a whole new dynamic with this offense. I didn't like in the small sample size we saw then of them play together. You, you need Tyrese not to look over his shoulder to enable and empower him to play his game. And when they were playing together, it just did not function well. And on top of that, you're tying up more cap space in that position. So that combined with the greater theme of the Pacers moving off guys with injury health this. Um, okay. Uh, I lost here at the end, Scott, but I feel like we got, we got the gist of the answer. Um, I, I also think Brogdon has been described to me, I'll say, all I'll say is a, a very confident player and person. And I do think that there is probably not going to be a, a situation that was going to work for all sides where he was taking a step back to a young, unproven player, um, regardless of the upside and the talent. So I think that was also a factor to being that there are certain players like Miles Turner to ship this to the DeAndre Ayton part of this discussion, who, from from my understanding, I think Miles would, would be very open to sticking around it and being kind of like the veteran guy on this younger core that they're starting to build now at Tyrese and Duarte and the recent number six pick and Benedict Matherin. Um, Caitlin, I'm, I'm really curious for to, to pick your brain on this. This is probably like the number one reason I wanted to talk to you today. Because to me... If I'm the Pacers, I understand why they're at where they are at Miles Turner. And it does seem like, you know, talking to a lot of executives around the league, it does seem like the NBA's opinion on Miles Turner is that he is generally like a B-plus player across the board. Like, I think I'm higher personally on him as a three-point shooter and a shot blocker than I think the consensus among NBA evaluators are. And Scott and I were talking about this privately at one point on, on Twitter in our DMs about, like, wouldn't you just want to see what Turner is like, especially after the injury, where his value on the trade market can't be as high as it possibly could have been before he got hurt. Um, wouldn't you want to see that guy be involved with Tyrese and see what they could come together? He's still only 25. He's not, like, ludicrously, ludicrously outside of the um, – the timeline of these Pacers young guards, especially thinking that Duarte is one of the older rookies you know, we've seen in the lottery, come out of the lottery in, in a bit here. Um, is, the, is DeAndre Ayton like a far more intriguing prospect to you, Caitlin, than Miles? Or are you are you more aligned with me in that you would have rather seen them? I mean, and the other important context is that, of course, Miles' deal is expiring and a lot of NBA transactions end up being sparked by a team moving on a player before that big payday comes, you know, Aaron Gordon in Orlando last year, Jeremy Grant just now with Detroit. Um, I mean, even DeJounte Murray got moved to Atlanta, as I've talked about several times here on Colin in a similar situation to what Jalen Brunson was with the Mavericks now, where San Antonio is not going to be able to give him the extension he's going to want until he becomes an unrestricted free agent in 2024. So what do they do? Move him now. I, I get why the Pacers would be, looking to see what Miles' value is if they're not prepared to pay him the contract that they believe he's going to seek. But that contract is basically what DeAndre Ayton in theory would be getting. So what's kind of your take, Caitlin, on keeping Miles, the fit he has there, versus paying that dollar figure to bring in DeAndre in theory if they're able to make this thing work out? Well, let's look back at Malcolm Brogdon for a second. Because last summer... You know, he was being linked to Ben Simmons, at least from the Pacers' perspective. And people weren't laughing at that as a trade return. Like, obviously the Sixers didn't take it, but it seemed realistic. Now a year later, the Pacers trade Malcolm Brogdon after a year of, you know, Achilles stuff. And he gets traded for a first-round pick that's going to be pretty close to the second round. And Aaron Neesmith, who might pop with the Pacers, and then they also clear off some cap space. Um, I don't think that it's without risk for the Pacers. When they did this the last time with Victor Oladipo and took this more measured approach, 
his value probably couldn't have gotten much worse than it was after leaving the bubble. There was reason to bring him back and let him build that back up. And Miles' case, if you bring him back and he were to have an injury, there's risk there for you. And also, like, there's always kind of been these caveats in Miles' career where it's like, okay, well, if he doesn't play in Nate McMillan's offense anymore, okay, well, that's that's fixed. Now he's playing for Bjorkren or now he's playing for Rick Carlisle. Well, if he doesn't play next to Sabonis anymore, okay, well, if he plays with a different guard, what if all that's gone and nothing actually does change? Now you've revealed... <laughs> But seriously, yeah. though, like, you're de- no, you're dead on. We, yeah, this is all we talk about. You're exactly right. If you reveal that to the rest of the NBA, to this point in time, they might be thinking like, and I'm just totally pulling a team out of the air here for the sake of an example. If you're the Dallas Mavericks, you might be thinking, well, he's going to play the five for us, and we have Luka Doncic. If he comes back and does this with Tyrese, and it doesn't change, that could have an impact for the Pacers. Now, the next point that I would make, just from a basketball standpoint, and between Miles and Aiton, is. I believe enough in Tyrese Halliburton that he can probably make Miles have a modest bump next year because he is that level of playmaker. But I think it's also, I also think it's important for the Pacers to ask what is going to optimize Tyrese Halliburton. And if we look at the starting lineup they have right now, you know, if you're looking at Matherin, you're looking at either Duarte or Buddy, you're looking at Jalen Smith, you're looking at Miles Turner. Those are guys who all source the majority of their usage on spot-up attempts. So you are going to be having a lot of pressure on Tyrese Halliburton, whose game is mainly built on his feel, his floater, and his range, who doesn't put a lot of pressure on the rim, playing with a guy who throughout his entire career has never rolled on more than 50% of his possessions as a screener. And that includes when he was still starting at the five. The last time he started at the five, he rolled on like 30% of his screens. So I think that Tyrese's game is going to be opened up more by having somebody who is a rim roller, who's going to run the floor hard in transition, and who's going to be a good screener. And uh, as well as the fact that when Aiton gets a switch on the pick and roll, there can be some hiccups with him in the post. There can be times where you want more power than finesse from him. But he's going to immediately seal and bury that guy. And that's not really something that you necessarily see from Miles. There's not a lot of things. While he can't, he's a better shooter than Aiton right now, but he's not typically a credible shooter. People don't typically alter the way that they guard because he's standing out at the three-point line. So if I'm the Pacers, I understand why they're doing this. And then you kind of have to look at it, too, from this perspective of, in the past when they've you know tried to go after Gordon Hayward and Miles was put out there in that package, you as the Pacers could then spin that after the fact and be like, hey, we still really like Miles. We were just trying to acquire a player at a position of need. At this point, you're trying to acquire an upgrade at his position. I'm not sure how you unring that bell completely after going this far into it. I mean, there's reports that they've met with Aiden at this point in time. Yeah, it's very, it's an interesting situation being that, you know, the big picture of this situation is that Obviously, Phoenix has a desire to bring on Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant has a desire to go to Phoenix. That's very well established at this point. And the only way to really meet Brooklyn's asking price for Kevin Durant is to put in all the picks and all the players that aren't Chris Paul and Devin Booker. So that's DeAndre, and that's Cam Johnson, that's Mikhail Bridges. You know, I I don't want to speak to definitively about what's actually been offered because I can't say too much more than what I just said. Um, But what I do know is that Aiton has not been a player that the Nets have been particularly enamored with as part of a potential return. Same with Miles Turner in a theoretical three-team scenario where Turner is added to whatever Phoenix's haul would be back to Brooklyn. Um, So... I'd be curious. I mean, I really haven't gotten an understanding uh, of, of the Suns' appetite for Turner, but I would think at least they wouldn't want to have Aiden walk for nothing. Um, I mean, that's just that would seem pretty obvious, being that they're in a title-contending sphere of their franchise, and um, ultimately, you don't take a guy number one overall in the NBA draft ahead of Luka Doncic, ahead of Trey Young, and then let him walk for nothing. You know, at the end of his first contract. So I would think if it is a sign-and-trade, there'll be things that go back to Phoenix from Indy if it's just a two-team deal. Would it be miles straight up? You know, I'm not sure. And, and the cap stuff would have to be a little more because eight into my understanding would have to be 
a base year compensation guy. And I think Miles' salary is a little bit higher than what that number would be, half of Aiton's uh, purported, you know, potential max offer that he'd be getting, which is around like 31 and a half, I think. Uh, Scott, do you, do you have these numbers better or better understanding of the situation than me? Uh, not not exactly in front of me, but that that sounds about right. I I think the interesting layer in all this, first of all, I'll go back to Miles, though, is he, he's got to be feeling a wave of emotions right now. First of all, he hadn't played since January. He didn't finish the season the last couple of years after before both seasons pitching himself adamantly about, I'm defensive player of the year. This is This is my season. Then he's all in. He wants to play with Halliburton. He looks forward to this offseason and next year. And then exactly what you outlined here is, all right, um, they're trying to replace me and maybe move on from me. And wait, what are we doing here? Like, and oh, and by the way, he's not even in this country right now while this is all going down. So I can't imagine the wave of emotion that he has to feeling, be feeling right now all while going into the most important year of his professional career, trying to get paid probably um, for the largest contract that he, and he's 26, like with a couple injuries, you got to wonder what his value is right now. I think ideally you would hope if you're the Pacers to get like two first round picks, they got one for um, uh, Karis LeVert, one for Malcolm Brogdon, but but, um, neither were particularly probably good. Um, And here with Aiton, the interesting twist then becomes one, they're both represented by the same agency for, for Miles yes, and DeAndre Aiden. That's an interesting element because the agent has motivation to make sure they're both happy. Otherwise, you might lose one of the players, right? That's just common sense. Secondly, though, um, you know, the Pacers have an opportunity here to do something they very rarely have done and do an offer sheet and call the bluff of the Phoenix Suns. And then that, that really gets interesting because the, the, the Suns, do they risk losing him for nothing or do they pony up pay? And then what kind of challenges does that present for them moving forward while on a true championship contending roster? And if Aiton did just go out and sign a straight offer sheet and the Suns didn't match, which to your point, Scott, I, I, I mean, it'd be awesome. It'd be awesome if Indy just pulled that move and Phoenix actually, you know, really had no intent to, to, to do anything about it. But, um, I, my understand. I mean, I, I pretty much everyone I talked to around the league in, in Vegas about the situation said that there's no chance Phoenix wouldn't. But they didn't know. They were just people around the league who were saying what they would do if they were in that position. So Phoenix, from Kevin Hardovich's reporting, uh, and from you know just on the surface, like we've seen, they kind of conduct themselves and beat to their own drums. So maybe they do just say fuck it and they don't match on it. <laughs> like it, it yeah. certainly could happen. Yeah, and the uh, the the thing that also interests me with with this Herb Simon opportunity, for instance, in terms of offer sheets, is he is the longest tenured owner in the league. So he very much has the old school where us as owners are in this together. And so I even when when things were going a little bit haywire in the early part of last season, he sat down with a handf- handful of us, and I even asked them him strictly about this and he said that restricted free agents are almost like a death defying wish and then later basically says i rather make a fair deal uh than get into an ugly deal or or do a bidding war uh with one of your fellow owners however i was talking with kevin pritchard yesterday and and he he was saying he basically sounded like without getting to that point seemed open to the idea that they would consider it. Now, you got to keep in mind, there is a, a negotiating tactic here, too. You don't want to put it out there that you are not doing it or you absolutely would. But the fact that he mentioned that they are open to that idea and they're starting to do things a little bit differently over the last year or two and how they operate and consider things, I thought that was noteworthy. Yeah. Um, so if Aiden is there and it's Aiden, Tyrese... Um, Buddy Heels. Oh, 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 I'll I'll put Buddy for now. Um, Duarte. No, let's just say it's Aiton, Tyrese, Duarte, and Mathen are the guys who are, are actually matter. If Turner's out the door, um, you know, for this situation or whatever, this is probably complicated because I know his salary is involved in what the Lakers would want to do. But um, first for Scott, and then I'll then I'll bring it to Caitlin. Like the Russell Westbrook rumor is never going to die until he is no longer on the Lakers. Um, and, uh, I mean, 
I understand that Rob Palenka, former Buddy Heald agent and now Lakers chief executive, has a never-ending desire to to try to bring Mount, uh, Buddy Heald into the fold. So he'd have to be a part of a theoretical Westbrook salary dump type situation. But a Scott, like from an Intel perspective of this, like I've constantly been told that Herb Simon does not have an appetite to trade for someone of that salary and then do a buyout in order for them to not play for his own team. Um, so does that line up to what you kind of heard? It, it does. I When that was first brought up or mentioned with Russell and Indy being a possibility, it was right during exit interviews, I remember specifically. And I just laughed it off. I'm not even writing about it. It seems so irrelevant um, with this Pacer franchise. First of all, yeah, you got an old school owner who who believes in traditional things like if I pay you, you play. For example, right? Like it's pretty straightforward. On top of that, if he was on fair. your, it's like a fair agreement. I, I think so. Yeah, and on top of that, look at what the Pacers have. They're most mostly dominant at guards, so you absolutely would not want to bring him in. I don't think and immerse him in everything. And if I'm Russell, there's no way I want to go to a team be on a team but have little contribution, it seems like you'd either start and play a lot or be a buyout candidate. And to me, the Pacers make no sense in either one of those situations. And my last point on this is there's nothing on the Lakers, what they could offer from a package standpoint, that's intriguing. Like some have mentioned, you know, you never know what 2027 or 29 first-round pick might look like after the LeBron years. But I'm sitting there, and this is not reporting. This is just how the NBA works. Who knows who's running all these franchises like the Pacers in five years, right? So that's not a pick they may not even be using. So I'm not sure that would be any kind of motivation to make a deal. Whereas or, if it was or, a first-round pick next year or something. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was, just, I was just trying to be a jackass. I was going to say, or do you trade for that 27 pick to see to tell your ownership group, we need to be here in order to make that pick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way to get an extension, isn't it? Yeah. So, Caitlin, like, the reason I'm asking this, I don't think Russell Westbrook is really going to get traded. I don't think he's going to get traded to Indiana from you know, everything I, I've been told. But the Lakers have been pretty consistent in their messaging to other teams that they don't have an interest in moving Westbrook that doesn't you know, and, and picks to just offload him. They want to use him to go – Get other pieces back. And Buddy, like I said at the top, is clearly a player that the Lakers and Rob Palenka have interest in. So maybe, just maybe, if there's a way to add in Miles Turner in a theoretical situation where the Pacers call Phoenix's bluff, to use Scott's expression, and, and they get eight and Miles is still there, um, I could see the Lakers, from that logic that they've thrown out there, thinking – Westbrook and two first for Buddy Heald and Miles Turner, who, as Scott said earlier, would have to imagine the Pacers think Turner is worth about that price. I could see the Lakers at least thinking that's a, a healthy outcome for their Russell Westbrook trade situation. And then to go off the, the intel from Scott about how if Russ then is not really a buyout candidate, maybe he could become the deadline, or maybe you know there's an idea of. The Pacers can sell themselves on – again, this is me just spitballing here with, with relevant things I do know to be true. Maybe then you could talk yourselves into bringing on Russ, kind of hoping he can ha- be successful next to like a real ball mover, overall tide raiser like Tyrese. Um, and maybe come the deadline there's an opportunity to flip him as an expiring to Indiana for the – or to, to Charlotte for the long loss – son gordon hayward to come back and like you know, i don't know I, i'm again this is all to me in the spirit of the show please don't aggregate this this is me just spitballing here but i'm curious caitlin like what do you think russell westbrook on these indiana pacers would in theory look like if that deal were to ever come to come to be i think it would be pretty counterproductive um when i first heard it my reaction was similar to what scott's was that there's that's kind of undoing what you accomplished at the trade deadline to an extent because if we just use two examples recent history of the pacers what scott vaguely alluded to earlier about brogdon and tyrese tyrese is deferential almost to a fault um he plays a very inclusive style of basketball that i'm sure his teammates really like 
But I think this season needs to be about the Pacers discovering how much he's going to be willing to be a top option. So, like, when he was out there with Brogdon, the two of them got outscored by, like, 17 points per 100 possessions, or the Pacers did when they were on the floor. They were a net negative in all eight games, despite the fact that they won three of those games. They were a net negative in all four quarters. So I thought maybe it had just had something to do with the defense shifting, but it really didn't. And Tyrese's usage went from 20% without Brogdon to 16% with Brogdon. So he deferred quite a bit there. A lot of it became, you know, kind of one-and-done isolations against switches with Brogdon. I could see that repeating itself with Russell Westbrook if he's in that lineup. And then it's kind of like, what are we doing here? Because right now the Pacers, I think, have set themselves up pretty nicely. Like if you do get a guy like Aiton who can help Tyrese when he does get a switch because he can struggle against length to throw it inside, and then you have Mather and you have Duarte, um, that's showing you a little bit more of exactly what you have in Tyrese and how far he can take you. And I think that's a good thing to discover this season. The only way you can talk yourself into that is because of what the Pacers just did with Buddy. So, like, by the end of last season, I think most people probably thought Buddy was a negative trade asset. He might still be. I don't know what the intel is. But I'm to the point where I felt positively about him by the time the season ended to where, you know, kind of in my head, I think, you know, when you feel good about Buddy, it's probably the time to trade Buddy. But, you know, what Rick Carlisle did with him did help him. It helped open up his secondary skills. It made him an asset. So, there is some potential there that if you did bring Russell Westbrook in, similar to what they just did, maybe you could flip him later. But I think it would be too counterproductive to what your short-term goals need to be next season. I would agree with that. And that's, again, why I, I fully do believe it's not going to happen. But I was just curious to to get your standpoint there. Um, and, Jake, to me, it we, felt like almost just like connecting dots. Like, oh, Pacers have cap space. Oh, they're rebuilding. They could take on a contract. No one else maybe does with Russell. To me, that's what this feels like entirely. I, I agree there for sure. I think that's the same way Charlotte came up back whenever it did. Um, and I mean, the obvious MJ connection and the Jordan brand, I think, was real too. But it's even there, like just like with, with just like with Indy, they've got their young guard. I mean, just bringing on Russell Westbrook in a situation that really, like, I mean. The Hornets hired Steve Clifford to up the Hornets' ceiling to become the best playoff team they can be around LaMelo Ball. Just like it seems pretty clear the Pacers like are, are building around Tyrese Halliburton. So bringing on someone like Russell Westbrook into those situations just really doesn't seem to be an appetizing uh, situation for, for either of those teams and clearly – you know, if there was a team that really wanted him and wanted to get a deal done or wanted to take his, his space, his cap and his salary into space for some type of compensation, you know, he would have been moved already, but that, that has not occurred. And then, Jake, the last thing on this is one transformation I think we're seeing from the Pacers over the last year is going all, going all in on a special type of player, a player that is all in, a guy that loves basketball, that's going to the gym late at night to get more shots up. Like Ben Matherin's already talking about his his confidence level and how it's through the roof. Tyrese is getting workouts out here in Vegas. He's been here more than a week. He, he hadn't just came in for a day or one game to show face at all. Um, when they introduced some of the new players, they took him right to St. Elmo's, which is the great steakhouse in Indy. They took him around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They, they're, they want guys that they can dig their roots into the city, into the community, into the franchise. And so, again, I think, like Caitlin said, it's counterproductive to even consider something like this. Caitlin, is there anything left this offseason that you're looking to see how it unfolds with the Pacers? Um, or is there anything that you're looking to see now that this roster is currently comprised, uh, obviously outside of everything we've discussed? Are you open to me asking you a question? Yeah, hit me. Are you at all abreast of how Aiton feels about any of this? Like, is he interested in playing for the Indiana Pacers? Because that's the part that I, I don't have any intel or information on. Like, clearly we can see that the Pacers are interested in this at this point. Do you know what his motivations are? So, I don't want to say these are his only uh, aspirations, but it's been constantly communicated very clearly that Aiton and his people want him to get paid. They want him to get the max. They believe him to be a max player, and I don't know if that's the only reason why that he wants to go to Indy, but that's definitely one. I would think that also, with all the, I mean, it's it just sounds like a pretty like pseudo toxic situation what's happened in Phoenix between 
him and, and the coaching staff and other players there. So maybe not the whole coaching staff, but several members of the coaching staff that, you know, to find a team that does want you so badly like that, I would think that has to be an exciting proposition for him. But also this guy was just playing in the finals last year. So to your point, yeah, like I, I would be curious if I sat down with DeAndre and, and just talked to him one-on-one, like would he, and, and he, and he was, and he was uh, foreboding. I wonder if, he would be a little bit disappointed in, in taking such a step back on like a competition standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause the interesting part about this is when you asked me about between miles and Aiton before, you know, Aiton's only 23 years old. They're not similar players, but they do have some similar weaknesses specifically with their processing and what they're going to do in space. Like if Tyrese were to get blitzed, I think you're going to see some similar issues there, but you know, Aiton's already a really impactful player and without that. So what if it happens for him? So for me, like, I don't know what his motivations are, but if he comes to Indiana and he's playing with Tyrese Halliburton and he's being coached by Rick Carlisle under some very similar actions that he already plays in Phoenix, I think he's going to have more room to grow out other areas of his game and play through mistakes of what he's seeing in Phoenix. And I think that that's kind of a goal. I mean, I'll let Scott speak to it, but it seems like that's been echoed quite a bit throughout Vegas, that they're going to have this young core together that's going to have room to be able to make mistakes, get better. Maybe you let Aiton try to experiment a little bit more with, you know, what he could do off the dribble. I'm sure that Rick Carlisle probably will prod him to take, you know, maybe one, two threes per game, just based on how he was using Sabonis last year. So I think there's a little bit more upside there, but I'll, I'll certainly let Scott speak to that. Yeah, they've, echoing that point, they've talked adamantly about how, how this is going to be a fun year. It's going to, there's going to be losses, but there's room to grow and it's going to be great because we can grow together and learn together and immerse ourselves together. That's been the underlying theme of everything. And it's mostly because you have all these guys on the roster that are 22 and under, right? Um, kind of the outliers are your Miles Turner, even Chris Duarte, who's one year removed, uh, from being drafted here. My other thing here, with Aiton is my sense is that the Pacers really wouldn't be involved as much in this Aiton deal if the market hadn't dried up, if other teams actually had cap space and could be in this. But it's almost worked out completely in their favor where it's too good to be true to to get involved because you got a number one pick, a guy that almost assuredly would never choose Indiana. We've never seen it. The best free agent who signed with the Pacers is David West. And so this would be an opportunity to move back your timeline uh, or move up your timeline a little bit. He's three years younger. He's from the Bahamas like Buddy Heald. Um, and they could, again, learn, grow together while also adding a number one pick, which the Pacers have never had in franchise history. So there's a lot to that that has worked out, I believe, in the Pacers' favor here. Well, let, right. me, put it this, let me put it this way, though. Like, if Miles were to come back and – he does rebuild his value to a degree. This is a question the Pacers have to ask. Like if Phoenix was willing to take miles in a sign and trade, or you could do another deal. Are you going to get a trade return better than Aiton, who's arguably a top five, top seven player at his position? Sure. I kind of struggle to see that. So, I mean, I think that they got to be weighing that pretty heavily right now. All right, guys, this has been really informative. Very fun for me. I hope for everyone listening. Um, definitely going to open this up some questions now from around the NBA, um, do you guys want to stay and hang out? Or I, I could, I could uh, happily dismiss you from class if, uh, if you'd like to take a, take a step. I can hang for a bit if, if there's any specific Pacer questions I can help out with uh, as well. Cool. All right. So, yeah, you'll hang around. And then at the end, I want to make sure to give you guys a chance to uh, plug anything you have coming up or out recently. Um, I'm just going to run through the comments quickly before we take a question because always encourage the comments. But – this is an audio platform. We love your calls. And if you want to make a call, please make sure to make an account on Get Callin or on Callin. The Get Callin is the Twitter handle. <laughs> um, and uh, that's the only way for you to call in and interact with us. But also, if you do make an account, you get to subscribe to the show and get updates whenever we're going live. So that's all good stuff. Okay. John Collins update from Ice Tray. I don't have one aside from the fact that I think it's been matriculated online but uh collins was in atlanta working out with some guys at a table at the club with some teammates you know, I, I think everyone there is definitely preparing for collins to uh be back at this point but he's definitely still on the trade market but to the be preparing to be back aspect of it like i just haven't heard any momentum there at all um 
since draft picks were the priority for the Gobert trade, Terry Weather would accept an abundance of first round picks from New York, Julius Randle, and a veteran expiring contract for D Mitch. I, I don't think that there's going to be much of an interest from Utah side of things to take back Julius Randle. I, I really don't see that. I think having that type of deal in their books would seem to be suboptimal um, when they're, they're giving up a massive uh, superstar in that situation. Um, any updates on the Raptors' pursuit of a certain level big? No. I mean, to bring this back to Aiton of it all, like, the, the, the Raptors can only get him in a sign-and-trade scenario, and, and Phoenix is not going to be talking Aiton-trade with Toronto too, too aggressively while they're still obviously hoping to get Kevin Durant. So, and I don't even know, I haven't heard anything on potential negotiations there. I mean, in theory, based off of the BYC stuff we're talking about, Aiton, I, I think OG would be a player that Phoenix would want and his salary would match up, but it just it's difficult to really pin that down with all the KD stuff. A lot of Caitlin Cooper love in the comments. <laughs> we, we love Caitlin as well. I think it's possible the Sun just want picks to reroute them to the Nets. I mean, it is possible, but I can tell you that I don't think the Nets are are dying for draft picks. I think the Nets want to – and I've been told the Nets want to be a perennial contender just like Golden State. And they're not going to be prioritized. They're going to want the picks because that's what the price range is now, thanks to Rudy Gobert. But they're going to want the picks and players. They're going to keep them in the contending sphere. Um, what could possibly be the holdup on getting this deal done? We talked about that at the top. Scott uh, Scott really uh, broke down very well. We're waiting for Brogdon's physical to become officially official. And uh, then we will have the Pacers have truly have the cap space to bring on DeAndre, and, and now we bring on our first caller, Shay, who is on mute. Shay, how you doing? Can you hear me? Yeah. What's going on? Oh. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask about, is there any credence to the re- new reporting that um, Kyrie is interested in pray- playing in Brooklyn with or without Kevin Durant, or is what you've heard the same, that his preferred destination is still the Lakers? So both can be true, right? Like, look... It doesn't seem very likely at this point that Kyrie is not going to be outside of Brooklyn this season. So if he's going to be there, it's going to benefit Kyrie Irving to be a good Samaritan, if you will, and, and be a good team culture guy to get traded and rehab his value. Like that, That's kind of where I think maybe that uh, – or, or, or why that information is, is what it is. Um, it's got Caitlin, any thoughts there? On Kyrie? Yeah, and what his trade value would be, what you think about him going back to Brooklyn with or without Kevin Durant. I think that the entire Kyrie situation is typically, it eludes me. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I think, like, just trying to think of Brooklyn's situation and if they are, like, not truly bluffing that they're thinking they're going to bring Kevin Durant back and see, because I don't think he's going to get this out. But the idea that you're going to bring both of those guys back in this type of a situation doesn't seem very likely to me. I don't know that I'm buying that. And, and to me, I see Kyrie as a guy that's his, his opinion and what his beliefs are with where he wants to be could change hourly. So I'm not sure anybody has a true understanding of his feelings. I'm very hesitant with anyone you know, reporting or putting out what they believe Kyrie thinks because I'm not sure anybody does. Yeah, that's the thing with Kevin Durant as well. I don't want to speak for Kevin Durant. I have never spoken to Kevin Durant, but I will say that there's I mean, a lot of people around Kevin Durant have repeatedly talked about the fluidity of his decision-making. So I, I, I do, to your point, uh, Caitlin, about this maybe just being a bluff with Brooklyn. It might be, but also maybe Brooklyn's bluffing themselves even and, and thinking that, oh, maybe if we do this uh, – It'll, it'll last long enough where Kevin will just decide, you know what, it's fine, I'll stay. Um, we go to our regular caller, Kyle. Kyle, how are you? Kyle, you are still on mute. Kyle, are you with us? All right, I'm going to have to bum Kyle. Kyle, if you can get back in the queue, maybe we can call you back up and it'll work uh, next time. Um, Adama, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's perfect. Can you hear me okay? I gotcha. It seems like we got Hello? a patient question coming up. Oh, yeah, you got me. Wow, that's so funny. This is what the core used to look like. Yep. Um, so I, uh, my question is about, uh, Miles Turner, and I'm curious, uh, if Caitlin or Scott has a sense of 
if part of the motivation for Miles to not uh, maybe already have accepted an extension is the fact that he didn't get the featured role in offense he was kind of like desperately clamoring for. And if maybe if he's in kind of an approve it mode, like with Rick Carlisle, because he's always been loyal to the team. So I'm wondering if maybe he actually did, does see him start to get the shots that he would, he kind of wants that he would actually be more open to an extension during the season. And just wanted to see if you guys had any sense of of that kind of aspect, because I don't see that talked about very much. Yeah, I can take this first. Um, Just you look back at a guy who hadn't played since January, and I I don't think his trade value is incredibly high around the league right now. And or the point of willingness to sign him to a big extension. I was talking with someone yesterday that was wondering if he could get twenty million per year. He's already making eighteen, and this is supposed to be his prime contract. I know obviously you'd like a max contract or twenty-five million per year, but I'm not sure that's out there for him right now, both because of recent injury history and unable to finish seasons, but also just kind of his stagnant numbers. They're pretty much the same. Where he can really make his impact is on the defensive end. And so, by the way, something we haven't really touched here is if Miles is gone here, I'll be very curious to see the Pacers' defense because they were 28th last year. What will they be without Miles? Yeah, that's one thing I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. That's like when Miles is on the court, you you can get like top ten in the NBA. So I mean, that seems like it has should have a lot of value by default. And it's also a player like if they got injured, I'd be willing to wait to get there because where do you find that? Where do you draft that? It's going to take three years to develop it if you do draft it, anyways. And a lot of that can improve upon when they have better perimeter defenders here because a lot of it was the way in which they'd play, and it would lead to more opportunities at the rim for Miles to block because he had to be the safety net. So if you improve on the roster as they have, that should help alleviate it some, but it may take a year or two. I mean, I think you have to look at this from Miles' perspective as well, that I think he's betting on himself. And also he's never been out of the first round of the playoffs in his career. It doesn't really look like the Pacers are probably going to be in that position next year. Um, he has an opportunity. He's never been an unrestricted free agent. So I'm sure all of that's playing into it in part for him. Um, defensively, I will say that when you look at the numbers from last season, it didn't matter which solo five was on the floor. They allowed over 115 points per 100 possessions. And that's not to say, like, we can all see, we all have eyes. Miles is the best pick and roll defender at the five position they had last year. But that also speaks to the fact that they had enough other issues that I don't think you're just adding Miles back and getting back to a top six defense like they were three years ago. And on Aiton's front, um, Aiton's probably a better defender in space right now than what Miles is. So depending upon what type of defensive system they want to run, that might guide their decision-making. They did go to a lot more switching over the back end of last season. If that's something that they want to do, and they want to do that with Jalen Smith on the floor, I think that there would be benefit um, in some of those situations to having both of them on the floor at once to have a secondary rim protector. So um, I think that there's stuff that they can do, and they just need to simplify the overall scheme over what it's been the last two years. And with Miles... Sorry, last thing on this, Jake, if you don't mind. I was just going to mention that going off of what Kalen said. Yeah, Miles hadn't got in the playoffs the last couple of years, and he's never been out of the first round. And on top of that, I think the number one thing for him is just to be valued and appreciated, something maybe he hasn't felt over the last couple of years. So all of those factors into play into, I think, his mindset here. There you go. All right, we're going to JJ. JJ, how are you? Hey, what's up, uh, Jake? This is a Knicks-related question. Um, Let's go. I'm I'm, I'm, I wanted to, um, Ian Begley just earlier saying that the Knicks view RJ Barrett as untouchable. And I seen your report that the Knicks and the, and the, the Knicks and RJ Barrett haven't gotten close to an extension. Um, on that front, basically. Sorry, you faded out there at the end. Can you just ask the question really quickly again? Oh, I can't hear you, JJ. I'm sorry. You can't hear me? Oh, now I got you. Yeah. Hit me quick. Oh, oh okay. All right. Yeah, I, I was just asking because um, I seen a report from Ian Begley earlier saying that the Knicks are not interested in trading R.J. Barrett in any deal. And I seen your report earlier saying that um, the uh-huh. Knicks and R.J. Barrett are not close in extension talks. So I was wondering what you're hearing on that front. Yeah. I mean, look, I would think that the – the Knicks' first, um, you know, overture, if you will, for Donovan Mitchell would definitely be like, yeah, you know, RJ's off the table. Can't happen. But 
Yeah, we'll see as these negotiations continue where that actually goes. Um, if that's the case, like, I don't know, Jericho Sims, someone told me this morning, is, is, a, is a young piece that maybe could be a piece that goes back. And the Knicks have so many picks now. Uh, they are going to have to match salary. So there will be, have to be some salary going back to Utah if, if, if RJ is not included. Because um, he is at a big number. I forgot off the top of my head, but in the final year of his deal, he's definitely at or around or pushing $10 million. So that helps get to Donovan's 30 or whatever it is. Um, but there's, there's going to be complications involved. It's not going to be I – mean, this is going to take time. I, I, I would – I've been told – I mean, I was on the phone with someone with Utah right before – uh, the report came out yesterday about the Jazz being listen, listening to, willing to listen. And, I mean, it just – they're willing to listen, yes, but the Jazz are only going to move down to Mitchell unless they get an offer that absolutely knocks their socks off. So if you're the New York Knicks, I don't see how you can create an offer that knocks Utah socks off without R.J. Barrett involved. I mean, you, you would agree, right, Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, I talked about this a little bit last night on another podcast, but if I'm the Knicks, I'm a little bit, I mean, I'm not confused by it because they obviously had basically a whole entourage there to watch Jalen Brunson and Donovan Mitchell. But I think that you're going to have quite a few problems in a playoff situation with your backcourt as Donovan Mitchell and Jalen Brunson when you're looking at Milwaukee, you're looking at Boston, you're looking at Philadelphia and, and how many, you know, if we... If there was a fictional stat of possessions hunted, I think that's going to be pretty high with the two of them. And while I do believe in, while I do believe in Tom Thibodeau's ability to construct defense, I think that that would create a lot of workarounds. So if I'm the Knicks and RJ Barrett is something that Danny Ainge is making it, you know, mandatory along with that many draft picks, I I don't think that that's probably something I'm going to do, especially if I have to send RJ their way because he has improved as a defender. And then you're just going to be giving up another person. So. Um, I don't sure. necessarily completely understand that fit. All right, Darcy, how we doing? How's it going, Jake? How's it going, Caitlin and Scott? Uh, thank you for taking the call. Uh, quick sure. question. So based on with everything that you just said, um, you know, if the Knicks have been building up, you know, all these assets, all these draft picks, um, and saying that, hey, whenever, whenever a star player becomes available, we're going to be aggressive to make a move. But obviously, you know, Donovan mentioned some calls are being made about him. Uh, and, and there's rumors of some hesitancy to go there, but who else would they target with these assets, right? You know, who who else is going to become available that that would top down at the bench uh, at this current standpoint of where the team is? Because, you know, if you're not going to give up the assets for him, who would you give it up? Well, there's a notion in the league that, like, you know, one guy could always become available. Like, two weeks ago or two weeks before free agency started, no one in the NBA was really preparing for the scenario where Kevin Durant was going to request a trade. And then, one hour before the bell rings, Kevin Durant requests a trade. I mean, no one was expecting James Harden really to ask out like a year or so before, but then the whole thing of Mike D'Antoni blows up. There are more leads, sure enough. The Westbrook situation was not a good fit. And he's you know requesting a trade before the deadline and, and gets to Brooklyn midseason. So, I mean, a, a lot of teams... I think I think a lot of teams aren't like the Knicks or aren't like uh, when teams are lying in the books for LeBron or trying to make a move for Kevin Durant. Like a lot of teams, such as New Orleans, for example, with their haul for Anthony Davis. I know from everyone I've talked to with New Orleans that they didn't they don't have a specific target. They've never really had a specific target with who they want to go and use those picks for. But you like to be sitting on that nice you know pile of cash when a very expensive bidding war is about to start whenever doesn't matter who it is you'd like to know that you've got the the big gun to out outman anybody on the market in case you do want to get involved can, can i take this one too yeah yeah i would just say like just look at the Pacers as an example i can tell you the fan base was very tired of the turner sabonis pairing that I had wore in its course a long time ago and as was the but, coaching staff yeah, but the benefit of patience there was they didn't have a crystal ball. They didn't know that Tyrese Halliburton was going to become available, but he did. And because they had held on to that as long as they had, they positioned themselves to be ready to take that on instead of just making, you know, I'm sure they had lots of other deals that they could have taken over the last several years, but it wasn't the right deal. Tyrese Halliburton was. So, you know, you wait, you keep your powder dry, and you wait for that type of an opportunity to come up. A nice fun detail I can share is that – um, I know that Brooklyn was at least one team in addition to Philly that knew Tyrese Halliburton was available. Uh, 
because in the Sixers efforts to move James Harden or to acquire James Harden, you know, before they got to the final deal, I have been told that uh, the Sixers brought the idea of, of Tyrese back to Brooklyn and like, how, how would they have gotten him right by trading Ben Simmons for Tyrese first? So uh, those two teams were released aware he was on the block with the Caitlin's point. I don't really know how many other teams in the NBA were fully aware that Halliburton was, was for the taking. I, I when, Sabonis deal went down. No one was really surprised about Sack getting Sabonis, but the return, most people were probably thinking that it would have been Darren Fox, but I would think that's that's a job well done by the Pacers front office to getting the, the more acclaimed prospect of those two guards. Um, what I Oh, go ahead. You go, you go, Caitlin. Oh, I was going to say, what I had heard at the time, and you can confirm this, your sources are much better than mine, but from what I had heard, Sacramento was under a lot of pressure to bring in a all-star. So you're basically looking at, like, Ben, Sabonis, maybe Julius Randle, and that, you know, Tyrese wasn't necessarily on the table for every offer that was made available to them. That was just yes. what I heard from a couple other markets. So, yeah, there was, some, sure. there was something that went on. They clearly thought Sabonis was that special. I agree with you. All right, we got AJ. It's, we're coming up on the top of the hour here, so we will get to Colin with the Antonio Davis uh, jersey, and then I apologize to Noah and Matt. We're going to have to run after that. Um, AJ, what do you got? Hey, Jake, thanks for taking my call. You, you probably already answered this. I got in kind of late, but, you know, uh, how how real are the reports as far as, you know, the Nets trying to – keep KD and then possibly just run it back with Kyrie. It's funny because now you got Kyrie just posted on his Instagram page, kids and people in his Nets jersey. So it may be something, maybe nothing. Second part question to that is how quickly, if this is an actual real scenario, do the Lakers move on to plan B, which is a lot of the noise has been Indiana, um, you know, or maybe the Spurs, um, and then third part, what the hell is Charlotte doing? <laughs> so thank you for all that, AJ. One, we did talk a lot about Brooklyn and, and, and Kyrie. I'll say quickly, like, we don't think, I, I really don't, don't see Russell Westbrook getting traded. We talked about it a lot. The Indiana situation does not make sense in the Patriots side of things. The Nets, like I wrote last week or two weeks before, whatever it was, like even if they get two first-round picks back or someone in Kyrie who ostensibly will leave in free agency next year for nothing, um, they don't taking on Russell Westbrook as an expiring contract is going to give them a fifty million dollar tax hit around there because his contract is eleven million bigger than Kyrie and it pushes them into an even greater tax threshold. That doesn't seem realistic, and I think Kyrie is. is it seems it seems pretty clear to me Kyrie's preparing for the realistic outcome of him not going back. Um, and then to the Charlotte part of it, they are, you know, in a situation where, you know, Miles Bridges, and I don't want to say too much about that right now, has, you know, put them in a difficult spot. And that's obviously trivializing the greater magnitude of what Miles Bridges' alleged actions were, but we're trying to get to this quickly. Um, you know, they hired Steve Clifford to, to raise that, that team's floor on the defensive side of things and to bring, you know, structure there and, We'll see if it's – I mean, it's either – to me, I've been saying this to people on the league. I think Steve Clifford's honestly going to – either going to be the best thing possible for the Mellow Ball in that franchise or he's going to kind of become combustible like Stan Van Gundy was in New Orleans. It's going to be one of the two. Um, and, and I am curious to see how, how it figures out. But, yeah, I, I've been curious why they didn't use one of their lottery picks to go get Miles Turner. Like, I, I don't – the front office there just has never really been too, too willing to push their chips from the table and make a move like the Kings did for DeMontis Sabonis or like the Pacers did to offload Sabonis for, for Tyrese Halliburton. They, they just never really – they flirted with Miles and Indy forever. I mean, Scott probably knows even more than me. But from my understanding, the, the Hornets have never really been willing to actually ante up and, and put some real pieces together that would – get Indy's interest or, or, or meet Indy's asking price. Yeah, the Hornets have been interested. They've been one of the teams that have seemingly been interested for two or three years now. And the Pacers were really trying to get an additional lottery pick this year. So that would have been one to consider. I know lots have been touched on about Wizards, the Knicks pick right there, uh, you know, 10 and 11, which they were unable to get. But the Pacers were trying to to get that pick, and it would have made sense there. And they, the Pacers were also very much – 
considering Miles Bridges for a deal before yes. all of this went down. And then they, they kind of yes. put that, obviously, shelved that and, and reset things a little bit and look towards Aiden now. All right. We go to Aristotle. What a great username. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. I appreciate you guys taking my call. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase John Macri a little bit, who I think some of you guys may be familiar with. But uh-huh. he basically had a newsletter last night that went through each of the teams in the league and their ability to compile a deal for Mitchell. Um, and basically, you know, you have your six to eight teams that are rebuilding or retooling, 10 or so teams that don't have really any picks, um, five or so teams that have pick protections that limit them. Um, and then you're really left with Toronto, Miami, Memphis, Portland, the Knicks, and the Pelicans. So you got to think that Memphis and Portland kind of suspect fits. Um, Toronto and Miami, I doubt their picks are really expected to have much value. And then really what it comes down to is like the Knicks and the Pelicans, assuming, you know, the Jazz are motivated to move Mitchell in 2023 or to like basically tank for the draft. Um, Like, could you see a world where the Knicks don't really have to give up any of their young assets and could just make like a really heavy pick forward package, something like, you know, the four protected first, two unprotected, and then, you know, a bunch of pick swaps, something like that. Um, and then also, of course, the matching salary. So, like, you know, Julius Randle probably, um, you know, uh, you know, Quentin Grimes even maybe, um, or Cam Reddish, and then Rokas, whatever the guy guy's name is in Europe. Uh, but could you yeah, see a world I, where I they can get him? No, I really don't. I mean, the, the Jazz – are going to want something better than what they got from Rudy Gobert. And I know people look at the Rudy Gobert package as a quote-unquote poo-poo platter where they got all these picks and that's the real value. But Jared Vanderbilt has a ton of value in the league right now. Patrick Beverly has, re- has retrade value. Willie Beasley probably has retrade value. Walker Kessler was just, you know, a, a very highly touted first-round pick. Um, and the European prospect, whose name I'm not going to say because I'm going to mispronounce it, um, as someone that I know, uh, the Timberwolves were pretty excited about too. So it's not, they're not just going to take back Julius Randle, like, and, and be stuck with the rest of his contract on their books because they're giving up. I mean, they don't want to trade Donovan anyhow. They're only willing to trade him if there's an offer that comes that is just a stupid good offer, like they got from Gobert. Um, so this isn't going to be a situation like Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs where. Uh, and same with Kevin Durant. Like I know, I've heard several teams say to me, "Well, this is just gonna, this is gonna be just like Kawhi in San Antonio, where the Spurs thought they were gonna get the moon and the stars, and they ended up only just getting Demar Derozan, Yaka Pertle, and a first round pick, which I guess would be the equivalent of like four first round picks, right? But this is not, this is not the same situation in Utah, and it's definitely not the same situation in Brooklyn, where both the Nets and the Jazz." You could you could take you could say they're bluffing or think it's a negotiating tactic, but I, I do believe that they, that those two teams are both willing to go into camp this year with all those players back involved. I mean, especially being that maybe he has behind the scenes, but I have not been told and have not heard that Donovan's requested to trade. Um, in fact, I've been told he does not want to. Um, I, I don't have that like on the most solid grounds, but I mean, I, I would think, he, yeah, he, he's in a good situation in Utah for now, um, being the, the, the hierarchy he holds and, and how they've, they've done certain things like trading for Eric Paschal. And, uh, you know, I, I think he had a pretty good involvement in the uniforms and all that stuff. So you're not just going to get down on Mitchell for a lower price because the rest of the market can't compete. Like he's not for sale. So, you know, you have to, uh, like, you know, it's like walking into someone's house and saying to them, I want to buy your house. Well, if they're happy in their house, you're going to need to give them an offer that they literally can't refuse because why would they just uproot their life from their home that they're very, very happy in, that they have no interest really in, in leaving? That is, I think, how Utah views their current, you know, situation with Donovan and same thing with, with Brooklyn and Kevin. Um we're going to go to Colin for our last call. Again, apologies to those in the queue we couldn't get to, but I got to run, and Caitlin and Scott are here for free, so I can't hold them too long, and I appreciate you guys doing this. We're going to wrap it up with the Pacers question. Colin, what do we got? Thanks for taking my call, Jake. How do you know it's a Pacers question? 
your profile. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Um, great. And uh, Caitlin and Scott, huge fan of your work. Um, so for the record, I'm totally on board with um, the idea of signing Aiden or doing a sign and trade. I know Pacers Nation is a little divided on that. Um, so a two-part question here, assuming that it does go through and that Turner is no longer on the roster, um, a lineup of Halliburton, Matherin, Duarte, or Heald, Smith, and Aiton, um, what do you think the win cap for that team would be? Um, I'm thinking like over under like 35 wins kind of. Um, and considering the front office has uh, sent out all this messaging about you know getting off the treadmill of mediocrity, wanting to build through the draft, do you think that um, actually acquiring Aiton and kind of accelerating this rebuild would actually just put us back in play in limbo um, for, for the coming years. Um, so yeah, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Caitlin, you want to take this one first? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that Aiden makes sense and is going to be very complimentary to Tyrese, but he still has some flaws in his game. So I think throughout the season, if you're committed to helping him grow, there's going to be some hiccups. I don't think that it's going to, I don't think that signing him is going to preclude them from getting a good draft pick. I'm going to put it that way. And I think that the Pacers know that what the quality of this draft is as well. That there is reason. I'm not saying that the Pacers are not going to be a team that's going to go out and try to lose games intentionally. That's not who they are. Like, no disrespect to Jake's book about tanking. <laughs> but, um, I, I don't think that that's going to apply here. They're going to go out and try to win games. But I think that they have to be very aware of what the next draft is. And I don't think that I don't think that it will interrupt either of those goals. I think that they have a good place where they could achieve getting a really good player and also drafting another really good player next year. And I think just having steady health in its own right after having 400 games lost to injuries last year, that in its own right will lead to some more wins and stability within the roster, no matter whether it's Turner or Aiton there. Um, and, and as like she said, I agree that my sense from the front office is they are content with this being one more uncomfortable year for the franchise. It'd be the third straight where they've missed the playoffs. And then go go forward. You have your core built. They've had at least a year together, and that's when you hope things accelerate a little bit after that window. There you go. All right, guys. Thanks. I held you for uh, for 70 minutes here. Appreciate the time. Really, really do. This was a lot of fun. Um, anything you guys want to plug besides, obviously, Scott, everyone who's here is a Patriots fan. If you're not subscribing to Substack, the Fieldhouse Files, you're doing it wrong. I recently learned of the beautiful landing page and the overall web web design. It's a wonderful, wonderful program for all Indiana Patriots content. Anything else you want to plug, man? Uh, I had one-on-one conversation with Kevin Pritchard uh, that I'll release here in the coming days. That we, that was really insightful, I think, on a number of topics and then just other summer league coverage that I, I know Pacer fans will appreciate. There you go, man. Caitlin, anything from you? Yes, I have a draft written about DeAndre and ready to go, thinking that I had people telling me on Friday that this was going to be a thing. So um, very in-depth, deep dive that if something does happen here, I will be ready to publish. So people can look out for that. There you go. All right, we will be back on the Colin app on Friday. I don't exactly have the time or the guest yet because I'm traveling, but I'm still going to make sure we get to take some calls. Noah and Matt and anyone else who wanted to call in, I'll be happy to take your questions then. Uh, please subscribe to the show. Please don't aggregate this. And you'll get updates on when that next thing is coming or all our shows are coming. And uh, if you got in late and want to hear the beginning, we're, we're all saved up here um, on the app. And the show will live as a podcast here and on, and on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And there's some other platforms, too. I'm, I don't know off the top of my head what they are, but I know they exist, that people listen to it, though. So... Thank you, guys. Thank you, Caitlin and Scott, most of all. Appreciate all the listeners' support. We'll talk to you when we talk to you. And let's hope we get some clarity on Indiana sometime soon.